All right. Open your Bibles up to Mark chapter 12. We are going to be looking at verses uh, 1 through 12 today. If you have a uh, uh, Bible from the welcome table, it's on page 899. Um, This is the final parable in Mark's gospel, and it's the only major one outside of uh, of chapter 4. If you remember all the way back when we were in Mark chapter 4, there were there were three or four uh, parables in that chapter. We'll talk about those, uh, or just kind of a, a brief reminder. Um, the, the parable of the of the four soils. We actually talked about that one on our Christmas Eve service. Um, the, the parable of the growing seed, which told us how God's kingdom expands slowly, sort of mundanely over time, but constantly. And then the parable of the mustard seed. Um, that reminds us of the size and scope of God's kingdom. Although it seems small now, it's, it's beyond anything we can imagine and what we can count. And so today is the parable of the vineyard owner. So it's in the same uh, vein, so to speak, uh, of these other parables. If you remember, parables are short stories from everyday life that, uses, uh, that use common concepts to, to make an important point. The parables that Jesus tells serve as a wall in Mark's gospel especially that separates uh, those who are God's people from those who are not. It, it determines who's on the inside and who's on the outside, right? And, and he uses parables to reveal the secret of the kingdom of God to those on the inside and to conceal the secret of the kingdom from those on the outside. Now, this parable is a parable of judgment against the religious leaders of Jesus's day. Last week, we looked at um, chapter 11. Um, Pastor Tim came and he preached on the the, the figless tree and the fruitless temple. This is the beginning uh, um, of a section that starts with the triumphal entry of of the king and Messiah and the Lord of the temple that comes in and, and then and then pronounces judgment on the religious leaders of the day. And that's going to stretch from, um, from the beginning of, of chapter 11 all the way to the end of chapter 12, and then col- uh, culminate in the prediction of the destruction of the temple in chapter 13. So this is kind of where we're going. Jesus is now in Jerusalem, but before he uh, does what he's come to do and die on the cross, um, he's going to pronounce judgment over the religious leaders who have failed in their obligations to the Lord, to lead their people uh, in obedience to him. And so this is directed at at the religious leaders, but we have a lot to learn from this parable today because it reveals the very heart of God for his people and his power to ultimately bring about and build his kingdom. And it's a message that both unbelievers and believers alike need to hear this morning because we need to understand who God is and how he operates and, and what this is all about, right? And so I want to read it, Mark 12, 1 through 12, and then I will pray, and then we'll dig in this morning. He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug out a pit for a wine press, and built a watchtower. And then he leased it to tenant farmers and went away. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the, follow- to the farmers to collect some fruit of the vineyard from them. But they took him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant to them, and they hit him on the head and treated him shamefully. Then he sent another, 
and they killed that one. He also sent many others, some they beat and others they killed. He still had one to send, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenant farmers said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him, and threw him out of the, of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill the farmers and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came from about from the Lord, and it is wonderful in our eyes. They were looking for a way to arrest him, but feared the crowd because they knew he had spoken this parable against them, so they left him and they went away. Lord, we thank you for your word and we pray that your spirit would take it, work it in our hearts, illumine our eyes to see not only the hope that we have in Jesus, but the truths contained specifically here in this passage that lead us to Christ and the gospel and draw us into greater obedience to him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we just read this parable from Jesus to the, um, to, to the, to the religious leaders of, of the day. But to understand this parable, we actually need to go back into the Old Testament for a minute and read another parable uh, in Isaiah first. It's called the Song of the Vineyard, okay? And it's Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. You can turn there if you want. Otherwise, I'll just read it. You can listen. Here's what it says. I will sing about the one I love, a song about my loved one's vineyard. The one I love had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He broke up the soil, cleared it of stones, and planted it with the finest vines. He built a tower in the middle of it and even dug out a wine press there. He expected it to yield good grapes, but it yielded worthless grapes. So now, residents of Jerusalem and men of Judah, please judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I did? Why then, why, when I expected a yield of good grapes, did it yield worthless grapes? Now I will tell you what I'm about to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and I, it will be consumed. I will tear down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland. It will not be pruned or weeded. Thorns and briars will grow up. I will also give orders to the clouds that rain should not fall on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of armies is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, the plant he delighted in. He expected justice, but saw injustice. He expected righteousness, but heard cries of despair. Now verse seven in, in Isaiah five reveals that Israel and Judah, the, the two kingdoms that have been divided from the one kingdom, they are God's vineyard, okay? And it's this, this parable or this song, it's a summary of God's relationship with Israel, with, the, with Israel as, as the whole kingdom of God's people, even though they're divided kingdoms. It's a summary of the history of God and his relationship with them. He brought them out of Egypt. He planted them in a in fertile land. He gave them his instruction and he promised to bless them richly if they obeyed it. And he gave them everything that they needed in order to do that and bear good fruit as his people. But what did they do? They didn't listen. They rebelled against him. They worshiped other gods. They adopted the wicked practices of the pagan nations and they lived 
according to their own set of rules. If you go back a couple chapters in Isaiah 3, the Lord indicts the leaders for the corruption of his own people. Isaiah 3, 13 through 15 says, The Lord rises to argue the case and stands to judge the people. The Lord brings this charge against the elders and leaders of his people. You have devastated the vineyard. The plunder from the poor is in your houses. Why do you crush my people and grind the faces of the poor? This is the declaration of the Lord God of armies. But in then in chapter 5, we see that all of Israel is judged because even though Israel's leaders failed to lead the nation in righteousness and obedience to God, no one who is corrupt will escape judgment. And the whole vineyard is corrupt. Now, the temple was the central place of worship. It was the dwelling place of God's presence. And it was so full of hypocrisy and defilement that God withdrew his presence and gave it over to destruction at the hands of the Babylonians when they captured Jerusalem and sent the southern kingdom of Judah into exile in 586 BC. And now, a little over 600 years later, here you have the Lord of the temple, God himself, who's come in, examined the temple, and what does he see? Defilement. He sees corruption. He sees hypocrisy. God's people have been once again established in Jerusalem. They're under Roman rule. And now the Messiah is here. And this is what he sees. Corrupt leaders of Israel who have turned his house of prayer for all nations into what? A den of thieves, right? And so once again, the central place of worship is, is full of hypocrisy. It's full of defilement. It's full of corruption. And when God himself walks in, what does he do? He turns around and he walks out. And then he brings charges against the religious leaders who are responsible for its defilement. And he warns them of the impending judgment once again. This is the cycle God goes through with his people, right? And Jesus does this in the form of a, of a parable in a way that, that would lead these uh, leaders to think back on Isaiah chapter 5. Now, we need to be careful um, as we read this not to allegorize every single detail in this parable, okay? Um, not every detail here is symbolic, but we do need to highlight a few of the major ones as, as we get on the front end here so that as we go through it, we understand what's happening, what, what Jesus is saying. So here are, here are a few of the things right here, okay? The vineyard is Israel. Same way that, that God uh, said it in Isaiah 5. The vineyard here is Israel. It's God's people. The vineyard owner, same thing in Isaiah 5. It's God, God himself. The tenant farmers are, um, are Israel's leaders. The servants are the prophets that God has sent. And then the son is, can you guess? It's Jesus, right? So, so Israel is the vineyard. God is the vineyard owner. Israel's leaders are the tenant farmers. The servants are the prophets. And the son is Jesus. We need to keep these in mind as we work our way back through this. So Mark chapter 12, verse 1. He, meaning Jesus, began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug out a pit for a wine press, and built a watchtower. And then he leased it to tenant farmers 
And he went away. Jesus is telling this parable, the them here, is the chief priests and the scribes and the elders that were mentioned in uh, and came in uh, in chapter 11, at the end of chapter 11, and questioned Jesus' authority. So they question him. He, he answers their question with a question. They go silent, and then he speaks up and gives them this parable. So this, these are the religious leaders of the day that he's addressing here. Now, again, we don't need to um, read into the fence and the wine press and the watchtower. Jesus is referring to a common practice in first century Palestine where a good portion of the land was owned by absentee landowners who would rent out the land to hired workers and then would share the crop with, uh, who would then share the crop with the owner at harvest time. But in the midst of that, they would get into a lot of disputes about when and how much and those kinds of things. So these guys know, they're familiar with this because it's an everyday occurrence in that time and place where they live. Something that is worth noting about this first verse though, is how much effort and investment the owner of the vineyard went into preparing it, right? It's similar to the description Isaiah gives about the prep work that God does in, in Isaiah's vineyard parable. God says, what more could I have done for you? The same, the same thing is true here. He's invested so much into this vineyard so that it will produce fruit and then has rented it out for these laborers to work it and bring the harvest. And so he should expect it to yield good grapes. He should expect to collect his share of the fruit come harvest time. Look at verse two. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard from them. But they took him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant to them, and they hit him on the head and treated him shamefully. Then he sent another, and they killed that one. He also sent many others. Some they beat, and others they killed. Notice the contrasting repetitions right here as Mark uh, describes this parable for us and what Jesus is saying. One emphasizes the patience and the kindness of God, and the other emphasizes the wickedness and the injustice of the religious leaders. Notice the language. He sent, he sent, he sent. He sent, right? Over and over and over again, the vineyard owner continues to send servant after servant after servant. Even after they're sent away empty-handed, even after they're treated shamefully, even after they're beaten, even after they're killed, he continues to send. Now, if we were the vineyard owner and we kept doing that and someone would observe our behavior, what would they call us? Insane, right? doing the same thing over and over again with expecting diff different results. We might even be accused of abuse of the servants or, or neglect or, or, or enabling the sin and the disobedience of the farmers. But we need to understand this. God is not insane, nor is he callous, nor is he ignorant. He's patient and he's kind. And he's doing this for a purpose. He has a reason, a very specific reason. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. He says, or, or do you despise the riches of his kindness? He's talking to some hard-hearted people. Do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? That's the purpose. Because of your, hard, uh, of your hardened and unrepentant heart, 
you were storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. Instead of sharing in the harvest, these people are storing up God's wrath because they're rejecting the kindness and the patience of the Lord who continually sends his helpers to them, his workers to them, to lead them to repentance in kindness. The vineyard owner keeps sending servants to the farmers in order to give them a chance to respond to him in obedience. But what do the farmers do? They beat the first servant and they send him away empty-handed. And then with every servant after that, their behavior gets worse and worse, right? Um, it escalates in their response. Some they beat, others they kill. The, the, the owner sends many, many servants and none of them bring back a harvest. Some of them don't even come back at all because they kill them. Again, it's reminiscent of the history of God's relationship with Israel. Jeremiah was another prophet in chapter 7, verses 25 and 26. He says this on behalf of the Lord. He says, since the day your ancestors came out of the land of Egypt until today, and, and Jeremiah is talking about this while they're in exile. I have sent all my servants and the prophets to you time and time again. However, my people wouldn't listen to me or pay attention, but became obstinate. They did more evil than their ancestors. 500 years later, Jesus laments over this in Matthew's gospel. Matthew 23, 37, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Second Chronicles 36 is the final chapter in, in uh, Second Chronicles. It, it closes um, with, uh, with the Babylonian invasion of Judah, the southern kingdom, and the destruction of the temple. But it doesn't end there. It ends with a promise of, of return. But this is what the Lord says in uh, verse 15 and 16 of Second Chronicles 36. It says, But the Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word against them by the hand of his messengers, sending them time and time again, for he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept ridiculing God's messengers, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the Lord's wrath was so stirred up against his people that there was no remedy. And then the next few verses, it tells of the Babylonian invasion of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, and the deportation of the people of God into exile and into captivity for 70 years. This is God's judgment on them for rejecting him over and over and over again. And after sending so many servants only to be ignored by his hard-hearted people, God finally gave them what he warned them he would do. And he brought judgment on them. But in Jesus's parable here in Mark, the vineyard owner has one more card to play, right? Look at verse six. He still had one to send, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. Now, Mark uses the language of a beloved son only two other places in his gospel. And as the readers who, who have been reading through this together, we ought to recognize when we get to this point where those two, those two uh, phrases have come from, right? One in the beginning in chapter one of Jesus's baptism, when God the Father speaks and says, this is my beloved son, right? with whom I'm well pleased. 
The other's at the transfiguration in chapter nine, when God, again, the father speaks on behalf of the son and says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to me. Right? So there's no question for us in our minds then when we see the same language here that Jesus is putting himself into this parable as the beloved son. He's linking the vineyard owner's son to himself. But we need to say something about the vineyard owner's comment in verse 6 here. He says, they will respect my son. Now, this doesn't mean that God expected people to respect Jesus. It's clear already through the predictions that Jesus has given of his upcoming rejection and death in chapters 8 through 10. And actually, there's a fourth one hidden here in this parable. He's predicting his death here, too. It's clear through those things that God not only knew that, he, uh, that, that they wouldn't respect his son, but it was part of his sovereign plan of redemption put in place before the foundation of the world. The vineyard owner's comment is simply part of the story. It's not something that we need to draw symbolism from. But it is something that we need to understand because God knows what he's doing. But do the farmers respect the son when he comes? Look at verse 7. But those tenant farmers said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. Now the farmer's attitude toward the owner is revealed by how they treat the owner's son. Since the son came and not the owner them, himself, the farmers may have assumed that the owner was dead and that the son had come to uh, collect the inheritance of, of the uh the vineyard. And so rather than grieve his death and give the son the vineyard out of respect of the owner, they see their chance to keep the vineyard for their, themselves. And if the son is dead, they, they reason, then the vineyard becomes theirs because there's nobody left to claim it. And so they seize him with their greedy hands and they kill him and they throw him out of the vineyard. Again, we don't need to read a bunch of symbolism into uh, them throwing him out of the vineyard. Mark isn't concerned with connecting that to, to Jesus' death outside of Jerusalem. Um, the main point is that he's, communicate, that he's communicating here is that this degree of wickedness that the, that the farmers are showing, that they've stooped to, this injustice that they have, that they would kill the beloved son and claim the property as their own. And the whole parable is meant then to set up what Jesus is about to say in verse 9. So let's look at that. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He's asking this to the religious leaders. He will come and kill the farmers and give the vineyard to others. The Greek word from, uh, that Mark uses for owner here in verse 9 is the word kurios. It means, can be translated uh, also as God is Lord. Mark does this on purpose. This is, a, this, is a, this is a clue to his original readers who, who would speak Greek, right? Who would read Greek, Roman Gentiles, of what's going on here. He's, he's tying the owner himself to the Lord as the owner of the vineyard. He's making it very clear that that is who owns the vineyard. Jesus is revealing the wickedness of the religious leaders and the righteousness of God in this verse. He's pointing to, to the religious leader's unjust actions and God's just actions. The punishment that Isaiah's 
vineyard owner brought on the nation of Israel is now the punishment that Jesus' vineyard owner will bring on the leaders of Israel. The vineyard owner is God in both accounts, and he will not leave any unjust action unpunished. In the Old Testament, he gave the vineyard over to a pagan nation that destroyed Jerusalem and the temple and ruled over God's people. And, and, and that's going to happen again in some degree. But here he's not going to give the vineyard over to another nation, even though Rome will attack Jerusalem and destroy the temple in 70 AD. This time, though, God is constituting a, a new vineyard made up of Jews and Gentiles that will be cared for and led by the apostles under the headship of his son who will inherit the vineyard as his own possession. How will God do this then? Verse 10. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is wonderful in our eyes. Jesus' question in verse 10 is rhetorical. He's talking to the chief priests, to the scribes, to the elders of Israel here. They've read this scripture. They know what it says. They don't know what it means. And that's the point. Anytime Jesus asks a uh, seemingly sarcastic question like that against the leaders of Israel. He's saying, listen, you know this, but you don't know this. Let me show you the true interpretation of what this actually means. He's quoting from Psalm 118. It's the same Psalm from which the people were shouting cries of Hosanna in uh, the triumphal entry back in chapter 11. This Psalm is full of, of messianic undertones and temple imagery and in the Old Testament context, the stone was most likely referring to Israel itself being rejected by uh, and despised by pagan nations. But here, Jesus is taking those verses and he's applying them to himself. This is a clue for us. Whenever Jesus talks about the Old Testament, he's going to apply it to himself. So we should apply it to him. He is the stone rejected by the builders, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders of Israel. And through his death and resurrection, Jesus has become the cornerstone in, uh, in the new temple made up of God's people of every nation who are united to Christ through faith now. And in whom his presence now dwells through his Holy Spirit. God has established forgiveness and restoration through the judgment and the sacrifice of his son. He sent him on purpose. This came about from the Lord. Is it wonderful in your eyes? Do you know God's kindness and his patience that leads you to, to repentance? Have you experienced that in your life? Do you know how deep that the love of the Father goes for you, that he would send his son knowing that he would be rejected and killed so that you could be accepted and live? Or have you rejected the cornerstone who is truly the only way? Peter says later in Acts 4, there's no other name under heaven by which we might be saved. And he refers to the same verse, the cornerstone. Have you rejected this cornerstone? He's the only one that can save you from God's righteous judgment. Remember, there's no unjust thing 
that will go unpunished. God either punishes his son on behalf of those who put their faith in him, or he punishes those who reject his son. But every act of injustice will be brought to account. So why not reject your sin instead and turn to Christ in faith? This is, this is the good news of the gospel, right? That Jesus came, that he obeyed God on our behalf where we have disobeyed over and over and over. We may not be Jewish, but we're, we're just like God's people. The history of mankind is, is that God himself gave all of these things to us so that we could have this relationship with him, loving, obedient relationship with the God of the universe in perfect union with him, with his presence uh, with us, and we ruined it over and over and over by our sin and rebellion. But because God is love, and he's patient, and he's kind, and he's just, he sent his son to pay the punishment so that God could still remain just. If he doesn't punish someone for, for sin, he's not just. But if he doesn't offer his son for us as a covering for that punishment, then he's not loving. This is why Jesus is the way, because he is the beloved son who not only came in obedience to the father, but, but willingly gave his life for all who would believe in him. So that his punishment in our place becomes our freedom. Not only that we are made righteous in God's sight, but now we are the place where God dwells in his spirit. How do you think the religious leaders responded to Jesus in his parable? You think they figured it out? They're like, oh yeah, we screwed up. It's us. Sorry. Please forgive us. Verse 12. They were looking for a way to arrest him, but feared the crowd because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. So they left him and they went away. Isn't it interesting how the, 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 the language reads there? They left him, they went away, similar to how Jesus came into the temple and then left. For them, it's in one ear and not the other. Usually when Jesus spoke in parables, the true meaning was concealed to those on the outside, and he explained uh, that, that, that meaning to those on the inside. But the religious leaders, they know here that Jesus used this parable as an indictment against them. Do they take it to heart? Do they, do they repent of the error of their ways? No. Even though they know that he had spoken this parable against them, the true meaning of it is still concealed to them because he just revealed himself to be the Messiah. He just revealed himself to be the Lord, God who created them, the God of the vineyard, the son of the father, right? And they don't listen. Their hearts are hardened to the truth, and they continue to play the role of the farmers. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy here in this parable. They keep looking for a way to, to arrest Jesus so they can kill him, just in the last chapter. We've seen this phrase a, a few times in Mark's gospel. They started plotting for how they could kill him, just like the farmers. But it's funny because they feared the crowd. 
They want Jesus dead so bad, but they're unwilling to arrest him right then and there because there's, there's still swarms of people coming in to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And, and a, 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 a majority or a lot of those people would be from Galilee, where Jesus has spent most of his uh, uh, ministry, public ministry, uh, performing miracles and teaching. And so these people would have, have heard his teaching. They would have seen him heal the sick and, and the blind and raise the dead and do all of those things. And so they have this tremendous amount of respect for Jesus, even if they don't fully understand who he is. And so the Pharisees, the, the religious leaders, they don't, they don't want to arrest Jesus right then and there as all these people who respect him are showing up. So they connive. They, they bide their time and they wait. But this too is according to God's plan. If you read John's gospel, the, the, the main phrase in that is it was not his time. God is in control of when God gives himself for his people. They don't, so the religious leaders don't want to anger the crowd by arresting Jesus. They certainly don't want to admit their guilt. And so what do they do? They leave. They leave. Now we know how the religious leaders responded to the parable, but, but how do we respond today as followers of Christ? What, what's, what's the point of us reading this this morning if we don't learn something from it and, and apply it to our lives, right? This isn't meant just for us to ridicule the religious leaders. Don't you have like a, a tendency to want to do that? I, I, I feel that whenever I read things like this where Jesus is putting them in their place, we're made in God's image. We have a sense of justice in us and we want to see wrong made right. And so when Jesus brings that out in the, in the religious leaders, we're like, yes. But we need to understand that if we were in their place, we would do the same thing that they did. If it weren't for God's mercy, we would have judgment because we would be disobedient. When was the last time that the gospel was good news to you? We're Gentiles, remember? We're Gentiles. We're not even, we weren't even in the, the, the people of God to begin with. But it's because of events like this. It's because of, of um, uh, no, it's not, it's not even just because of events like this. It goes beyond this, before this. We've been grafted into the vine through Christ and we're part of God's vineyard. We're, we are now God's temple along with people from every tribe, tongue, and nation who put their faith in Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. But this is not because the religious leaders left. This is God's plan from the very beginning. He brought Israel in out of Egypt to be his people, to proclaim his glories to the nations. Jesus says, my house will be a prayer, a house of prayer for all the nations. He always meant to draw people in from everywhere. The Jewish temple was originally built to be the place where God dwelt among his people. Gentiles were unclean. They're kept outside of the temple by a wall that threatened death, literally at the gate, written in stone. You cross this at risk of your own life. But Paul tells us in Ephesians that not only has Christ broken down that wall of hostility, he's united Jew and Gentile into the new temple of God through faith in him. So not only has Jesus given us access to the Father through his sacrifice, that alone would be amazing, right? 
but he's made us now the place where God and his presence dwells. The father who sent the son has also sent his spirit to be his abiding presence with us. Remember, Peter is one of the 12 standing here listening to this parable being told. And though he didn't fully understand what Jesus was doing then, it became abundantly clear to him after Jesus rose from the grave, gave them the spirit of God and commissioned them with the, uh, him with the rest of the, of the apostles to care for the vineyard while Jesus was away. And empowered by the Holy Spirit who now dwelt in him, Peter wrote this to the Gentile church in 1 Peter chapter 2. It says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God. You yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house are being built to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone. And the one who believes in him, I will never, will never be put to shame. So honor will come to you who believe, but for the unbelieving, the stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone. And a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobey the word. They were destined for this. But you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, the vineyard of God so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's us. That's us as the Gentiles. Once not a people, but now a people through faith in Christ. Once under the judgment and wrath of God, but now under the mercy and grace of God through Christ. We won't proclaim the praises of the one who called us out of the darkness and into his marvelous light unless we first marvel at Christ and the glory of the gospel. We need to preach the gospel daily to ourselves. That's not a cliche. You got to do it, right? Otherwise, you wake up on a rainy day like this and you're like, oh my goodness. Is my basement going to flood again? Right? Should I even go to church? Sometimes before we even get out of bed, there's so much that, that encompasses our, our minds and presses on our hearts that we don't even think about the good news of God's new morning mercies that are fresh from the same God. And that as Gentiles, we've been brought into something that we never deserved. need to ponder each day what Christ has done and say this came from the Lord and it is marvelous it is wonderful in our eyes and we rejoice in the fact that God planned to include Gentiles from the beginning right that this wasn't his plan B because Israel rejected his son we've always been included in God's plan of redemption but we should never take that for granted because it's not anything that we have done to be included. It's only by God's grace and goodness and mercy that he would do that. And so we never elevate ourselves above these chief priests, these scribes, these elders 
in this passage. We, we should lament like Jesus does for them. Oh, how I've longed to gather you, but you wouldn't listen. We should never assume that we've earned what we've been freely given. And we need to remember that once we were not a people, but now we are God's people because we have received mercy instead of judgment. And mercy came to us because what? Christ was judged in our place. So then we rest in the fact that God will cause his vineyard to grow and bear fruit. Did you notice that God didn't, in, in, this, pa in this parable, he, he didn't get rid of the vineyard? He didn't bring judgment on the vineyard. He gave it into other hands so that it would continue to grow and bear fruit. He will cause his vineyard to grow and bear fruit. How does he do that? He cuts off the dead branches and he throws them into the fire. And he prunes the live branches so that they will bear more fruit. As those who've been grafted into the vine, we can welcome God's discipline in our lives then. Knowing that it's not punishment because he already punished his son in our place. Instead, it's transformative. It's always transformative for us as children of God. It's meant to conform us more and more into Christ's likeness, to grow us in righteousness so that the harvest of righteousness takes place when Christ returns. This means that when we sin, we can be confident then that God will not take away his Holy Spirit from us that he has implanted in us as a guarantee for the inheritance to come. Instead, he will use that Holy Spirit that he's given to us to lovingly convict us of our sin, to remind us of the gospel, and the glory of Jesus Christ, and to help us then run to Christ for forgiveness instead of turning and leaving and hiding. And in the process, God will prune, prune the dead things and, and grow the fruit of the Spirit in us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. God will cause his vineyard to grow and bear fruit. And then we remember that even as we abide in Christ, as we abide in the vine who is Jesus, and we are the branches, John 15, we read that last week. He's also sent us out as laborers in the field. He's promised that the harvest is plentiful, right? And he's commissioned us to go with the good news of the gospel and make disciples of all nations to gather more living stones for his spiritual house. Yes, we need to marvel at what the Lord has done, but we also need to proclaim the praises of the Lord who has done it. We savor the gospel in our heart, but we don't just keep it for ourselves. We also share the gospel with the world, starting with those closest to us, because judgment still remains for those who reject Christ. We have to keep those things in tension, right? Why does God send messengers to his people over and over and over because judgment is coming and he doesn't want that for them god is not an absentee vineyard owner he tends to the branches himself so that his vineyard will always bear fruit and even as christ has gone away to prepare a place for us what has he done he sent his spirit to keep us abiding in him and bearing fruit until he returns. Isn't that wonderful? Aren't you glad? 
So that on a day like this, where you just kind of want to go back home and take a nap, we can actually think about, I mean, take a nap. It's okay. Do it for the glory of God. But, but how much better would that nap be if you fall asleep? Just marveling in the goodness of Jesus and the gospel. Why do we, why, is there anything that says when we close these and walk out of here that we can't continue to meditate on that? In fellowship with our Savior? Don't we need that now more than ever? This is from the Lord. He brought it about. And it's wonderful in our eyes. May we never lose our wonder and the awe of Christ and the good news of the gospel. Every single day, we need it. Not just to, to equip us to share it with others. It, it is our lifeblood. And by God's grace, may we never be found trying to just keep the fruit all to ourselves. Instead, may we continue to plant the seeds of the gospel in the lives of those around us. May we continue to water the seeds of the gospel in the lives of those around us and pray, pray, pray that the owner of the vineyard bears fruit of repentance in the lives of the people around us with whom we've shared the gospel. And that he does that through faith in his beloved son, whom he sent to fulfill his plan of redemption and lay a new foundation for a new temple in which his presence will dwell forever. Amen? Father, we thank you for the goodness of Jesus Christ. We thank you that we don't just have good news to hold on to. We thank you that we have Christ himself as the head of our body, as the cornerstone of our temple, as the vine that bears the fruit on our branches. Lord, would you help us today as we go about this day to just be in awe of Jesus, to be in awe of you, to experience the closeness of our God through your spirit, to marvel at the truth of your word that proclaims this good news to us. And Lord, would you give us opportunities today, not to just soak in that ourselves, but to, to give that away to others in obedience to what you've called us to do. Help us to continue to bear fruit because we are firmly rooted in Christ. And may we see your kingdom expand here. May we see your vineyard flourish. And may we see many come to know you through the power of the gospel as we go out as harvesters and share it, all for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.